From the Australian Institute of International Affairs, Victoria, this is the Dyson House Podcast, a series that investigates and demystifies real issues in international affairs. I'm your host, Clancy Berlin. Now, there's been something looming on the political world stage for a few years now. It's been forcing its way through the news cycle maybe as often as President Trump. No one really seems to understand or be able to explain what it is. It's divided a country, a trading block, and a continent. Today we're going to be talking about Brexit. But rather than talking about what Brexit is, I thought it would be better to approach it from a different angle. How about what caused Brexit in the first place? So today, I'm going to be talking to Dr. Ben Wellings, a senior lecturer in international relations at Monash University about nationalism, the Anglosphere, and how a crisis of identity might be pulling at the seams of a former superpower. Hi Ben, thanks for making the time for us to have a chat today. Uh, Look, I thought I'd start off with just finding out a little bit about your background, your academic trajectory, and uh, why you're focusing on nationalism. Okay, so uh, let's see, I I grew up and did my undergraduate and... um, uh, masters in England, Scotland, and France. So I grew up in England, did my that edu- part of my education in Scotland and France, and then came to Australia for a PhD. Um, I was always interested in nationalism, and in particular, English nationalism developed as I lived in Scotland and kind of understood the way that the United Kingdom worked and fitted together. So then, when I transferred to Australia uh, for a PhD. Um, I was making a comparison between nationalisms in Britain and Australia. And then when I got a job at the ANU, part of my role was in the Centre for European Studies. And that kind of led me to look at, well, what's the link between English nationalism and European integration? And so that's where that kind of emerged. And was that related to... Could you see anything synonymous with Australia's links to these like sort of colonial roots as well was that overlap was, or was it yeah that was yeah so what, what what i was initially what i was doing was looking at sort of the decline of, of britishness in both britain and australia because i i came over at the time of the republic referendum right and that seemed like a good way in mm-hmm. and um uh but but it kind of occurred to me that that in a way england was the place where the idea of britain had remained in its most pristine form um, but nevertheless, as we got into the early part of this decade, there there was also a significant, though under under researched and understated, push to differentiate England and Britain politically. Yeah. Right. And so, and then then I began to think, well, what what's driving this? And and really, it kind of came down to a, a sort of a, a correlation between very uh, initially kind of pro-English MPs in, in Westminster were actually pro, were actually anti-EU MPs as well. So I then just started to explore that link between Euroscepticism and Englishness, political Englishness, and it, it became very fruitful. Yes, yeah. I mean, I, I can imagine that there's a lot to, to take out of those things as they overlap. I, I think maybe before we go any further, mm. it would, well, many listeners might not be aware of the concepts of Euroscepticism and the Anglosphere. Sure. 
Would you be able to define those two terms just briefly okay. as a way to frame? Or yeah, so, so euroscepticism um, uh, is a term that's existed since about the 1980s and it's used to describe MPs or a broader attitude within the population that is resistant to a particular direction or the principle in toto of European integration. Right? So... Um, and initially it was seen as a, a sort of a peculiarly British political position. Mm. On the other hand, in this past decade, it has spread throughout Europe. So now that we have what we call Eurosceptic parties in pretty much every member of the European Union, it's, it's gone from the fringes to um, much more towards the centre of mainstream debate. And of course, it's gone furthest in England uh, well, in the United Kingdom, but in particular in England. Um, and the, the idea of getting out of the European Union always begged a question. Well, you know, what else do you suggest in its place? And for a lot of Eurosceptic movements in some uh, European countries, that would be a difficult one to answer. On the other hand, in the United Kingdom's case... There's always been an alternative, if you like, um, in the back of people's minds. And that alternative was a, some sort of restored connection with English-speaking peoples. Mm. And that idea has some provenance in British politics. Probably, uh, We can certainly go back to the mid-19th century and we can even go back to the Enlightenment. Um, uh, but its current manifestation is called, goes by the name of the Anglosphere, and that is a reworking of an older tradition that emerged in about 2000 on the right of politics in English-speaking countries, particularly Anglo-American um, politics, but certainly it's here in Australia too. Yeah. So Tony Abbott is a big fan of the Anglosphere. Yes, of right. course. Yeah. yeah. So, and you, you can understand sort of where it lies in terms of the Australian political spectrum. Absolutely. Um, it's on that right of the right, if you like. Yes. Uh, well, considering that there's quite an overlap of Euroscepticism and the Anglosphere, these ideas are sort of inextricable from each other in a modern context now, right? Well, it, I mean, that's certainly true in British politics because yes. the Anglosphere really answered a question for uh, Brexiteers. So, of course, in term, going back to that definition of Euroscepticism, now it's been slightly overtaken by... Uh, the term Brexiteer, as, as as someone who wants to get Britain out of the EU yes. in its entirety. Yes. Right? We used to think in terms of hard and soft Euroscepticism, yeah. that soft Euroscepticism would be um, an attitude that was resistant to certain policies of European integration, like the single currency or the common agricultural policy. Yes. But hard Eurosceptics would reject the principle of European integration and the EU entirely. Entirely. So that that's really what we think of as Brexiteers now. And um, the Anglosphere means different things in different places, but it's been really helpful for Brexiteers because it seems to suggest that there are countries out there that um, Britain could trade with and have be diplomatic partners with or really do more trade with and have enhanced diplomatic relations with that would replace what it has already with the European Union. Right. Yeah. And this would be... Australia, so, Canada. Yeah, yeah. America. So when we talk about the Anglosphere, we talk about core Anglosphere countries. Yeah. 
And they are the United States of America, mm-hmm. United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. Yes. Right? Around that then is a sort of a more indeterminate, and it depends, you know, which Anglospherists, if you want to call them that, mm-hmm. you ask. But India comes into it. Sing- okay. Singapore. Um, Ireland, perhaps, some West Indian countries, you know, like, and so it, it, it gets a bit sort of more blurred round the edges. Yeah. And it kind of depends on who you ask and what project they're pushing. It's an, it's an interesting one. In a, is a post-Brexit Anglosphere even possible uh, in a post-colonial world? Mm. Because there seems to be these colonial connotations attached to it that seem quite uh, risky yes. in, in a modern <laughs> climate. Yeah, absolutely. And and so um, one of the, the criticisms of the the people that proposed the Anglosphere is, is that uh, they have this kind of myopia mm. towards uh, the, co- the colonial legacies, the post-colonial legacies um, of uh, not just... Britain and the United States as as, as kind of in, imperial or neo-imperial powers, mm-hmm. but um, also the settler colonies like Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and and of course, um, a lot of this is a is bound up with what what I call one of the three pillars of the English Anglosphere, which is a particular memory of empire, and the logic there goes that countries in other parts of the world outside of the United Kingdom like Britain because Britain colonised them in the past. And so you can kind of see the mismatch there between the the projection from the United Kingdom and its reception in other parts of the world. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. So so even even in Australia, it's been interesting when... Because, because this sort of Anglosphere ideology explicitly or implicitly tends to exist now on the right. It wasn't always like that, but it tends to exist now on the right. Even when you start speaking to people on the left of Australian politics and you kind of mention this idea, there is uh, a great deal of cynicism towards the project, even hostility mm. I've encountered sometimes. Uh, so I'm beginning to label that Anglo-scepticism, right? Because <laughs> because the the idea is, is, is that... Um, I mean, when we think about European integration and some of the sort of great dilemmas of international relations. Um, we think of it as containing Germany. Yeah. You know? But what's, a, what's occurred to me as a result of the last couple of years is that it actually contained Britain as well. And not everyone is all that thrilled with the prospect of a global Britain, you know, strutting around on, on the world stage again in a, way, in, a, in a way that it used to. And, uh, you know, memories here on the left of politics tend to emphasise sort of British betrayal rather than, you know... glorious sort of colonial... Well, it's it's a particular memory of Gallipoli, it's a memory of Singapore. Yes. Um, You know, for for the right, it's about the the kind of like the inheritance of representative democracy. It's about Magna Carta, responsible government... um, institutions, rule of law, all these kind of things. Yes. But but the left is a little bit more sceptical. Right. And it goes back to that kind of radical nationalist tradition that, that the left is in Australia is heir to. Absolutely. And so if that is the sort of the uh, ideological origins of Brexit, now that it's shifted into a more, it's obviously been 
they've been trying to plan it for the past three years, so they've got to have something tangible now. Is this an example of looking for a hyper-globalized sort of response, or is this a protectionist measure? Well, that's a, that's a good point. It, it's not protectionist. It's not protectionist. No, and, and here we might need to differentiate when we talk about Brexit between the elite projects that got us to this place and the mass grievances that underpinned the result of the referendum. So when we look at, I mean, a lot of the focus has been in explaining this about the so-called left behind of globalisation, for which European integration is usually lumped under that category, although it's not necessarily the same thing. Yes. Um, nevertheless, this was all, you know, Euroscepticism as a, as a political project was always an elite project, and it was about exposing Britain to more globalisation rather than less. Right. Right, so it's not protectionist, it's in fact hyper-globalist. And um, this is sort of seen to be just like simply one way out of the, of the dilemma because... You, Leaving the European Union is going to leave a big economic hole in the United Kingdom, right? Um, so even even Conservative MPs who were pro-Remain have sort of shifted to this rhetoric of free trade and globalisation to rescue Britain from the problem of its creation. But but those people who are committed to Brexit for for many many years um, are are very keen on more globalisation in general, but in, in particular enhancing these older links, re- reviving older links with places like Australia, Canada, New Zealand, um, uh, and, and then taking this thing called the special relationship with the United States, which is an asymmetrical relationship, but nevertheless it's, it's there, um, uh, and, and turning that around, uh, turning it into something new, um, President Trump complicates that. Absolutely. Yeah, because because of his protectionist instincts. On the one hand, I think he feels a sympathy with the kind of, an, uh, as much as he knows about it, I don't think he knows a great deal about it, but um, would have a political affinity with the hard Brexiteers. Yes. Um, but at the same time, the whole America first idea doesn't incline him towards special relationships. No, it almost seems incompatible. Mm. But... So does that, that then sort of draws me to another point I wanted to make about the Five Eyes Security mm, Alliance. Mm-hmm. Um, is there much overlap or is there going to be a role that, that will play in this Anglosphere then? Is that the driving force behind what they're considering to be a potential Anglosphere? Because it's a relationship that already exists. Yeah, it, it's not really the driving force, but it, it, you're right. It, it does exist and it's existed since the late 1940s and early 1950s. Um, and it's it's what I sometimes call the actually existing Anglosphere, sort of boring, <laughs> that, right? That that um, that there is there is a truth to to the existence of the Anglosphere, and it's not just in term ideational terms; it, yes. it is in institutional terms as well. Right. Um, and also um, research, you know, by colleagues, Tim Legrand at Adelaide University, has shown that there are very dense policy networks. Yes. So when the United Kingdom or Australia look overseas to borrow policy from other countries. They don't go to Europe or Asia. They typically go to English-speaking countries. They go to each other. Yes. So, so the Five Eyes Intelligence Sharing Network is, 
it's not a driver of this, but but it certainly suggests that there is something more like cultural, if you like, to the existence of of this community of English speaking countries um, than than just kind of ideas in politics or several books trying to bind it all together and mm. um, a, a certain interpretation of 20th century history, for example. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, would, would you then argue that uh, considering that, like you said, it was, this is like a cultural sort of phenomenon and there's also that view that you, you, you touched on just before about those who have been you know, economically left behind um, and you would argue that this is more of a cultural and national ident- like identity crisis that's pushing this Brexit rather than those being economically left behind. Is there any credence to the view that those who are suffering economically in the UK are also a driving force for Brexit? I, th- I think they've, they've played a role in the outcome of the referendum results. Yes. Um, but it might be a slightly overstated role. Because it seems to be the one that takes uh, place in the media, it mm. seems to be a really big, yeah. a big it, way of presenting Brexit. It's been it's been the dominant way of framing Brexit. Yes, uh, and and in that way, it was reinforced by the election of President Trump, which was also framed in those terms. Yes, um, and it, and it also it kind of suits it, it suited the left as an explanation because again, globalization was to blame, right? So you know. Um, but there are reasons to be cautious with that, I think, because truly disenfranchised people in the United Kingdom don't vote, right? So um, if we think that the the referendum in 2016 had a, had a relatively high turnout of 72%, it still means that 28% of people didn't vote. And those people are likely to be disproportionately drawn. As you go lower down the socioeconomic scale, political engagement becomes less and less, right? Um, so what that means is is that actually in in terms of um, absolute numbers, the people who voted for um, to leave the European Union are not to be found in working class areas of the north of England, but actually middle class areas of the south of England outside of London. And so I think that gives a kind of a different inflection to what was going on. And that's where I bring English nationalism back in again, because English nationalism... Uh, was typically throughout its history because it's been one of the, f- the first states and nations to to seek some sort of uh, alignment between those two categories, and it's been there for a long time. Um, it's typically not a secessionist nationalism yes. like Scotland, like Republican Ireland, um, and 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 we tend to when we think of nationalism, we tend to think of secessionist nationalism. But really, there are other dimensions to it. There's irredentist nationalism that seeks bits of other countries. Um, but most importantly, and, and there are integrationist nationalisms. And nationalism's quotidian function, its daily function, is usually to integrate rather than to secede, right? So it plays this legitimising function in states. And in the last 20 years before the Brexit vote, the United Kingdom was kind of loosening along national lines. And... Uh, Strangely enough, this is when Northern Ireland ceased to be a driver of nationalism and that mantle went to Scotland and and culminated in the 2014 independence referendum, which was unsuccessful from a secessionist point of view. Um, But but in amongst all that, something significant was changing in England and England was developing a secessionist 
spirit, if you like, not towards the UK exactly, but towards the European Union. So, so it started to look and sound more like Scottish nationalism or Irish nationalism. I mean, very, very sort of like ironic outcomes from a historical point. Of view. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, but it's that's changed what it, form in a strange yeah, way. Right, but this is what happened, and so uh, this was all directed at the European Union, and it yes. was it was an implicit criticism. It is bound up with dissatisfactions with governance in the United Kingdom as well, but it, its political impact was directed at the EU. Yeah. And that's how it played out, to my mind, that's how that played out um, in that the, the Brexit was framed in very English terms. Well, I think we missed that in, in Australia, but it was a very English debate. Absolutely, yes. And, and in that sense, because it is essentially an English... Uh, debate. In, mm. How would that reflect on the future of the relationship between the EU and and Britain? Because the EU is an incredibly culturally diverse entity, and the Anglosphere seems to be a very narrow cultural way of viewing things. What does that indicate to you as a future mm. relationship mm. between the two? I think just to sort of start from the back, the, the Anglosphere is is actually. I mean, in, in its imagination, it, it's it's like. It's like a kind of sense of nationhood. It, it too is very diverse and riven with um, competing and uh, not necessarily compatible national interests, mm. right? Um, but of course, in the mind of the people who promote it, it seems to it seems to fit and make sense culturally. Um, the, the EU is is somewhat similar in in that you can sort of say, well, it's got you know it's got all these different member states and different languages and different national traditions and geopolitical interests, but. In the minds of people who promote it, the European level is supposed to underpin or, or, or sit over, depending on how you characterise it, all those differences. How, how the, the, the Englishness of Brexit will affect the future relationship between the United Kingdom and the, um, the European Union, I suppose depends on what happens to the United Kingdom. Because one of the, the, the key elements of Brexit has been... To, for the UK government to try and prevent the United Kingdom from splitting up. And this is what the Irish backstop is ultimately all about, is that where do you draw the boundary between the EU and the UK? At the border with the Republic of Ireland or with it, actually effectively within the UK so that you've hive Northern Ireland effectively off in trade terms? Yes. And the interesting thing there is, although that has caused enormous problems politically at Westminster, there have only been two opinion polls that have asked this question. And it's basically to to, to leave voters. Would you rather that the UK left the EU or that you kept Northern Ireland in the UK? And the answer is we would prefer to leave the EU. So again... So again, this this underscores the Englishness of of this particular phenomenon. Absolutely, yeah. and 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 of course, you know, as and when the United Kingdom comes out, what will Scotland do then? Right. So, um, having voted so overwhelmingly to stay in, um, you know, you could say, well, okay, things. The idea was is that the, the, there wouldn't be another referendum until things materially changed, um, and you know, five years later, if Britain comes out, things will have very substantially materially changed and they would be within their rights to have another referendum. I see. And what does this mean for Australia then? Uh, are we at 
you know, the front of the queue when it comes to <laughs> yeah. A, yeah. Uh, a, economically speaking, yeah. maybe? We are. Um, strange enough, we're at the front of the queue also with New Zealand uh, and also today with Iceland uh, and um, uh, and Switzerland. And um, so w- w- I think that the, the, the Australian government, pushed by its, you know, pushed by, by DFAT as well, made a very quick re-evaluation in the wake of the Brexit vote. And you remember we had our own election at that same time as well. Yes. And we, right, so, so one of the first, if not the first action um, of the Turnbull government, as it then was, was to say, will Australia will do a free trade deal with the UK when it comes out. And Australia's provided all sorts of support. There's been a lot of encouragement from the High Commission in uh, Australia, uh, sorry, in, in London, uh, when uh, Alexander Downer was there. Uh, and that message has continued now that George Brandis is uh, High Commissioner. Um, they quite like the Anglosphere too, they quite right? Like the Anglosphere, they, yes. yes. <laughs> so, so it, it all. I mean, they they may not characterise it, and 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 the Anglosphere is this strange kind of love that dare not speak its name in in right wing politics. And I and I suppose, um, you know, events in in Christchurch have suggested that there is a sort of a, a dark aspect to that broad idea i'm not pinning this on uh, specific advocates uh, yes. of the anglosphere who are in the public realm at the moment but um it might suggest that that there are layers to this um that we perhaps haven't appreciated so um australia would be very very keen and in and in some ways um this is a this is a net gain but the the thing is of course is that australia had at long last, started these free trade negotiations with the EU in 2018. Yes. And in some, they've just got to, Australia's just got to mitigate its losses, but it now has to do two free trade deals, one with the EU minus the UK and one with the UK if and when it comes out of the EU. So if, if the UK does not fully come out of the EU or remains in its customs union, then that is a net loss for Australia. That is a very interesting point that I hadn't thought of because that leads me to my uh, final question, which was uh, just trying to assess what's going to happen. It's such a fast-moving thing, but trying to assess what's going to happen in the next few weeks. Is it looking like a no deal? Are they going to crash out or do you think they'll stay in that market? That we're, market? we're having this conversation just before um, the British government goes to the European Council uh, and, and asks for an extension. So... I'm suspecting that some extension will be given, but the EU is being quite clear that you know there's got to you know it's a bit it's a bit like coming to a lecture for an extension for an essay, isn't it? Yes. You know, well that's fine that you want one, but what for? Yes. And uh, I think that's the EU's position is to say, well, sure, but look, you know, this is the this is the deal. They are offering um, where this could be movement is the so-called. future political relationship between the UK and the EU. Um, and and there might open up space for a softer Brexit. And out of that might well be that the UK would stay in the customs union. Yes. And that, therefore, would not be an outcome that would suit Australia directly. So if, if the UK remains in the customs union, then it would... St- it would not be 
directly a party to the Australia-EU free trade agreement, whatever that turns out to be. Yes. But it would indirectly be there. So, what, you know, I think that's an outcome that might actually respect, you know, there's a lot of reference to the British people um, and, and their decision to leave the EU. I'm not sure there is a British people anymore. And to interpret that vote as a hard Brexit was always a gross over overinterpretation of the vote, in my view. Yes. And so I think most people would want, you know, would, would in some ways want a looser relationship with the EU, but not one that totally robbed them of jobs and their economic future for a generation. So um, that, of course, might suit the people of the United Kingdom. I don't think it would suit the people uh, of Australia quite so well. If you like what you've heard in this episode and you'd like to know a bit more about the politics of nationalism, you can always follow Dr. Ben Wellings on Twitter at wellings underscore Ben. You've been listening to the Dyson House Podcast. <laughs>